Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Saturday Burnt Toast and Coffee Show with apologist William Hemsworth on the Four Persons Network. William is passionate about teaching the faith. He is a convert that attended a Baptist seminary. He is a father and a catechist that will encourage you to live the faith, evangelize, and defend it. To call into the show, the number is 515-602-9655. Once again, the phone number to call into the show is 515-602-9655. Ladies and gentlemen, William Hemsworth. Good morning, everyone. William Hemsworth here. Welcome to the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show. Hope everyone is having a great Saturday so far. Today's kind of a special day. Today is my daughter Madeline's 12th birthday. So shout out to my daughter Madeline. She's been such a blessing in my life. And I pray that all of you are doing awesome as well. So we have a Today's lineup, we're going to talk about the saint of the day, which is St. Charles Luwenga and his companions. We're going to go over the the um, the mass readings for Trinity Sunday. And today we're going to talk about the Eucharist, you know, the biblical evidence for the Eucharist. And we'll get into some of the church fathers as well, but really going to focus on scripture and the biblical evidence uh, for the Eucharist that hopefully will sharpen your the tools in your apologetics toolkit. Let's go ahead and get to our saint of the day, uh, St. Charles Luenga and Companions. And they were martyrs in Uganda in 1886. And friends, it's uh, kind of, I guess, interesting in a way. Not much has changed in that region of the world. There's still a lot of martyrs to this day. There's a, There was a study done by Pew Research um, three, four months ago. So there's actually more Christian persecution today than when the church first started. So it's kind of interesting. So pray for our brothers and sisters everywhere in the world that just to go to mass, you know, it's, it's a risk. And I think here in the United States, we take it for granted and it's very unfortunate. So in May 1886, uh, St. Charles uh, Luenga and his companions said they were martyred. You know, King Mwenga of the Buganda in Uganda was a cruel and was a cruel ruler. And he became king at the age of 18. And one of his first acts was to order the murder of James Hannington. And he was an Anglican bishop that was newly appointed to the region. So all this kind of lays the backdrop to our saint of the day. So bear with me. Now, the Christian missionaries, he believed, were representing European powers, if you will. And so they were, so he saw them as a threat. He saw them as a threat. So St. Charles de Wanga and his companions, he was 24 at the time. And his youngest companion was 13. His name was Charles. And he was just baptized the night before. But King Mwanga brought them before and said, you know, denounce Christianity. And they said, no way. And so the king ordered them to be put to death. 
So the group was marched to an execution spot on Lake Victoria, which was 16 miles away. They were, they were wrapped in reeds, they were stacked on a pyre, and they were set on fire. And so the, they offered no protest, but they just, they just prayed silently. And the Winga's last words were, my God. So reports of these deaths and many more in the coming weeks spread quickly, and it resulted in many conversions. The martyrs were canonized in 1964 by Pope Paul VI, who also made a pilgrimage to their shrine. So St. Charles Langan companions, uh, pray for us. So tomorrow is Trinity Sunday, my friends. Solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity. And the mass readings are actually very short, but the first one comes from the book of Exodus. And coincidentally, well, not really coincidentally, work of the Holy Spirit, we're going to look a lot in Exodus later on in our discussion about the Eucharist. So first reading comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 6 and 8 through 9. It says, early in the morning, Moses went up Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, taking along the two stone tablets. Having come down in a cloud, the Lord stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name, Lord. Thus the Lord passed before him and cried out, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and rich in kindness and fidelity. Moses at once bowed down to the ground in worship. Then he said, if I find favor with you, O Lord, do come along in our company. This is indeed a stiff-necked people, yet pardon our wickedness and sins and receive us as your own. No, amen to that. Now, today's second, uh, second reading comes from 2 Corinthians 13, verses 11 through 13. Brothers and sisters, rejoice, mend your ways, encourage one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the holy ones greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. And there's St. Paul giving a benediction in the name of the Holy Trinity. And 2 Corinthians was written in around six, between 63 and 64 AD. Some people think, some scholars think even earlier than that. Today's gospel reading, very popular. You'll see it at sporting events, John 3, 16 through 18. Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. But whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Amen. So our Lord Jesus, his earthly mission was part of a heavenly plan of the Father. And he displayed his great love through the sacrifice. He sacrificed himself for our sins. Now, the, ter the term eternal life, it refers both to obviously heaven, the divine quality of a new life. On earth as well as in heaven. So that is done through Christ. So we receive this gift on earth in the hope that we will possess it irrevocably in heaven. So as long as we remain in his grace. 
Now, what's interesting, I said John 3.16 is quoted a lot at sporting events. You, you often see signs there, you know, John 3.16, and that's great. But some people forget verse 18. You know, it's not so popular. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned. Whoever does not believe has already been condemned. Unbelief is a form outside the safety of the covenant that God has established. To reject the Son of God is to reject the light of faith in preference to spiritual darkness and death. So think about that as we go through this weekend and re look at these mass readings. Because often when we read scripture, we like to read the warm and fuzzy stuff like John 3.16. And that's a powerful verse. It's a great verse. But let's often not forget that if we choose not to believe, we choose the spiritual death. So oftentimes we forget that. All right, my friends, let's go ahead. Let's talk about the Eucharist. Is it a symbol or is it truly the body and blood of Christ? Now, I'm a convert. When I was a Protestant, when it was time for the Lord's Supper, because that's normally what it was called, the Lord's Supper, the elements would be brought up and prayed over, and the elements were bread and grape juice. Very rarely was wine in the church. I only saw it a handful of times in the church I grew up in. It was grape juice. In the Protestant churches I went to as an adult, it was grape juice. So the elements, as what they called, are prayed for. And we were told that they symbolize the body and blood of Christ. And so this is really a dividing point. Because as Catholics, we believe that the, in the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord being present in the Eucharist. And so I guess whether one person is Baptist, Methodist, or whatever, um, Protestants, Catholics, we believe in the Incarnation. We believe in the virgin birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and that's all great. That's fine and dandy. Those must be believed for one to be called themselves a Christian, in my opinion. But when we talk about the Eucharist, the conversation shifts. All right. So there are questions as to what the Eucharist is. And as some of my family members say, why can't I participate in communion at the Catholic Church? That's, this is what we're going to discuss today. So, though we're all Christians, there's a line in the sand when it comes to the Eucharist. Us Catholics, we hold that a miracle takes place and that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. So, many Protestants look at the elements as a symbol or a memorial meal for us to remember the Last Supper. If the Catholic Church is correct, then Protestants are missing a crucial aspect of Christian worship. Because as the Catechism states, and it's been repeated by Pope Benedict XVI and many others, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. And if Protestants are right, then us Catholics are guilty of the sin of idolatry for worshiping a piece of bread. Now, the whole point of this show today is look at the Eucharist in detail. We're going to look at sacred scripture. We're going to look at the catechism. We're, like, we're going to look at some writings of the early church fathers, church councils, and some of those first Eucharistic controversies even. So my whole goal today is to shatter the myth that says 
that the Catholic Church has started believing in the real presence of Christ at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. Some anti-Catholics, like Jack Chick and many others, will say that's when the Church started teaching transubstantiation. That's when the Church started teaching that that's when the Catholic Church started teaching that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. That's not the case at all. And we're going to go over some reasons why. So when the liturgy of the Eucharist is happening, every Christian, regardless of denominational affiliation, will recognize the words that are spoken by the priest. Because these words are scriptural, and they can be found in many places. One such place is Luke 22, verses 19 through 20, which says, Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cups, with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That will sound familiar pretty much to any Christian. Now, the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharista, which means Thanksgiving. So the Catholic Church states that the bread and wine present on the altar become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our participation in worship, in, in the worship that is happening in heaven, and our participation in the heavenly banquet on earth. Now, the Catechism in paragraph 1324 says, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. The Eucharist contains Christ himself, and it's his efficacious sign to us to be with us until the end of time. And it allows us to maintain unity with the, his people and his church. Now, like I said, Catholics believe a miracle takes place when the bread and wine are consecrated. Within the liturgy of the Eucharist, there's a section called the Institution Narrative and Consecration. In this institution narrative, the priest says the words uttered by Christ during the Last Supper in the upper room. Just as Christ gave himself under the species of bread and wine, the priest does the same in the liturgy of the Eucharist when he acts in persona Christi, or in, in the person of Christ. Now, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, in regard to this, says, quote, that sacrifice is effected, which Christ himself instituted during the Last Supper, when he offered his body and blood under the species of bread and wine, gave them to the apostles to eat and drink, and leaving with the latter the command to perpetuate the same mystery. Now, that quote I just gave makes mention of the body and blood of Christ being offered under the species of bread and wine. The church has always taught this. But thanks to Eucharistic controversies that were becoming prevalent, the church had to formally define this, had to, had to define this change that happened. Now, at the Fourth Lateran Council, the church formally defined this with a word known as transubstantiation. And this became a dogma and a definitive teaching that one must believe. Now, transubstantiation is the process by which the substance of the bread and wine vanishes in a way that makes room for the body and blood of Christ. Now, when this happens, the appearance of bread and wine remains. Now, since the appearance of the bread and wine remain, this allows us to consume the sacrament. In short, the substance of the material has changed, but the appearance stays the same. This understanding grew over the years as Aristotelian language became more mainstream and understood in a deeper way. Now, St. Thomas Aquinas, in his great work, the Summa Theologica, 
Um, he started to define these terms, even if the official word of transubstantiation had not yet been defined. Now, Thomas Aquinas writes, quote, the presence of Christ's true body and blood in the sacrament cannot be detected by sense nor understanding, but by faith alone, which rests upon divine authority. He shows us his flesh, though it may be in an invisible manner, as a way to strengthen us for the journey of life and to perfect us in faith. Now, though the word transubstantiation did not come about until 1215 at the Fourth Lateran Council, this doesn't mean that the church started teaching it then that's not the case at all so like i said some protestants believe this but history shows a whole other story church history shows that from the time of the apostles until the ninth century that the doctrine of the real presence of christ in the eucharist basically went unchallenged now there were some other groups like the gnostics for example who denied that it was the body and blood of christ but the argument can be made that they weren't really Christians to begin with. Let's look at scripture. We talked about St. Thomas Aquinas. We gave some quotes from the USCCB. Let's talk about the scripture. Now, some will claim that the doctrine of the Eucharist is not found in scripture. But this, this outlook is an indication of one reading scripture through a denominational lens or through that dreaded word, tradition. That's right, my friends. It is their own tradition that keeps them from seeing it in Scripture. The Last Supper narratives all describe Jesus as saying, this is my body. This is my blood. He says that in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 13. St. Paul also writes about the body and blood of Christ and the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. And, of course, Jesus himself in the Bread of Life discourse in John 6 in this discourse, of course, Christ loses followers because he's speaking literally about his body and blood. But to understand these New Testament passages, let's go to the Old Testament. Because these New Testament verses employ a theological term known as typology. Now, typology studies events and institutions that foreshadow something greater that's to come. Uh, Scott, Dr. Scott Hahn regarding typology says, quote, the basis of such study is the belief that God, who providentially shapes and determines the course of human events, infuses those events with a prophetic and theological significance. So understanding typology helps us understand salvation history as something fluid and not as periods that are broken up independent of each other. Because God doesn't change. And the subtle clues that he gives us in the Old Testament find their final fulfillment in the pages of the New Testament. With that said, we see the beginnings of the Eucharist in the pages of the Old Testament. And there, and there are many ways that this happens, but I want to focus on two main things. The bread of the presence in the temple and the manna in the desert. So the story of the manna in the desert takes place in the book of Exodus. Moses, uh, through the grace of God, he led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And even though they were slaves, they ate pretty well in Egypt. Uh, so they roamed through the desert, and they began to complain about how much better off they were in Egypt. How short-sighted of them, right? They were slaves for 400 years. Now they're roaming through the desert like, oh, let's go ahead and be slaves again. This is horrible. By the way, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, we read, quote, the whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, end quote. 
They were afraid. I mean, understandably afraid. Uh, they didn't know where their next meal was coming from because it had always been provided for them in Egypt. So Moses took their concerns before the Lord, and the Lord responds. So the Lord says to Moses in Exodus 16.4, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you, and each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. In that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. So, my friends, this miraculous bread was brought down from heaven every morning, and the people, the Israelites, were to pick as much as they needed for the day. So this is a foreshadow of what Christ says in the Bread of Life discourse in John chapter 6. In that discourse, Jesus says that he is the true manna that came down from heaven. Now, the Bread of Life discourse takes up most of John 6, but I'm only going to look at a few verses just to show the relationship between the man in the desert and the Eucharist. In John 6.32, Jesus tells the Jews that Moses was not the one that gave the bread from heaven, but the Father gives them true bread from heaven. Jesus is using present tense verbs and not past tense if he were simply discussing what Moses did. So the Jews long for the bread that Jesus describes, and he shifts the conversation from the manna that gave the Israelites life to the true bread. In John 6.35, Jesus says, quote, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In John 6.41, the Jews start complaining to Jesus because he said that he is the bread of life. When Jesus is encountered, the Jews cannot understand that they would be feeding on the living God. Both John 6.41 and Exodus 16.2 state that the Jews started complaining. They both started complaining over something that they believed to be literal. The manna in the desert was a real event, as was Jesus saying that his flesh must be eaten. Though the Jews were complaining, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus repeats himself. In John 6.51, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then it's interesting to note here that the the Jews not only complained, um, they were kind of pissed off. They were indignant. Uh, they asked among themselves, how could Christ give his flesh to eat? This leads to a very important point at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. If our Lord were speaking metaphorically, why were the Jews taken literally? The question they asked among themselves is literal in nature. And so Jesus understood their confusion. But you know what Jesus did next? He said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm speaking symbolically here. No, that's not what he said at all. He raised the ante, actually. In fact, with his next phrase, he would erase all doubt, and his audience would know exactly what he meant. So in John 6.53, Jesus states, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Pretty powerful. Now in this verse, Jesus uses a different Greek verb for the word eat. The verb used by Christ the second time around when he raised the ante is the Greek word trogo, and it means to gnaw, munch, or crunch. This word, in, in the Greek, this word is never meant as a metaphor. It's always used in a literal fashion. 
So at this saying, many of those who were following Jesus left. They left because they knew what he meant, and that meaning was literal. So oftentimes our Protestant friends, and I've used this objection too, they say, well, Jesus also said that he was the vine, that he was a door. Does that mean he was literally a door? Well, of course not. He wasn't using literal language. And not only that, let's look at the context here. Not only is he using literal language, followers are leaving him, and he's not stopping them. He's not saying, hold on, hold on, I meant that symbolically. No, that's not what he did. In fact, he turned to his 12 disciples in John 6, 61, and asked if they were offended and wanted to leave. He flat out asked his inner circle if they were going to leave too. He was not backing down from this literal language. He willingly lost followers over these statements. And so this comparison between Exodus 16 and John 6 shows that manna was a prefiguration of the Eucharist. And uh, Pope Benedict XVI, God rest his soul, he said, quote, The mystery of the Eucharist reveals the true manna, the true bread of heaven. It is God's Logos made flesh who gave himself up for us in the Paschal mystery. So I want to move on now to the bread of the presence. Um, the bread of the presence is also a foreshadowing of the Eucharist in the Old Testament. We see this in Exodus chapter 25, verse 30, that this bread was to be continually before the Lord. So this bread stood as a reminder to all who saw it that God was continually present. The bread was placed on a golden table outside of the Holy of Holies, and every Sabbath new bread would be placed, and priests would eat the old. Four times per year on major feast days, the bread of the presence was shown to the people to remind them that God was with them. The bread of the presence reaches its fulfillment in Christ when he institutes he institutes it in the Eucharistic celebration. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because it's Christ who sustains our spiritual life. Now, this connection isn't lost on our Protestant friends. Um, Protestant biblical scholar Paul Carlene states in his commentary, quote, the special the, the specially made bread that lay on an ornate table in the holy place in the tabernacle pictures Christ as the one who sustains spiritual life. The bread consisted of 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Covenant, Jesus has 12 disciples to represent the same. As the priests in the Old Testament lifted the bread to show the people that God was with them, Jesus does the same at the Last Supper. Now, using the principles of typology and what Jesus stated in John chapter 6, we see Jesus in his role as high priest offer himself to be eaten by his disciples. And of course, this is done every day in the celebration at Holy Mass. Now, we've talked about the Old Testament a little bit. We've talked about John 6. Let's talk about other parts of the New Testament. Let's look at the words of Christ. And for this, we'll look at the Last Supper narratives in the New Testament. But specifically, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the sequence of events is familiar because Jesus takes bread, as he says in Matthew 26, 26, and says, take, eat. This is my body. This is my body. The word is, is a crucial component in the study of, in this, what we're doing today in the study of the Eucharist. What does is mean? 
The Greek word used for is is the Greek word esti, E-S-T-I, which is a third-person singular verb, which means to be. So you can say, take, eat, this is to be my body. This is my body. What is even more interesting here, as far as the word is concerned, is its origins. So the word esti has its root in the present infinitive Greek verb, inei, which means to be, to exist, to be present. Now, in Matthew 26, 27, Jesus then states, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, the Greek language is a good starting point when we're talking about the Eucharist. But how about the Passover? I think there's a real connection to the Passover here. And guys, I'm going over a ton of material here. So if you're ever interested in learning more, I mean, there's tons of articles on the subject. Let's go ahead and talk about the Passover. The Passover meal was done to remember the Exodus event. You know, them leaving Egypt. You know, if you're not familiar with the story, they were told to slaughter a lamb, roast it, put the blood over the doorpost, and the angel of death would pass over them. So that way their firstborn wasn't killed. One of the plagues of Egypt. So it was a sacrificial meal in its own right. So prior to Passover, lamb would be slaughtered and the whole lamb had to be consumed. The Passover was a community feast. And it really parallels the gathering that we see with Jesus and his disciples. So during the meal, the head of the table would make comments. It was very ritualistic in nature. If you ever attend a Seder meal, you'll know what I'm talking about. There was a formula that was followed. But Jesus didn't follow the prescribed formula. You see, instead, he said the words that were mentioned in Matthew 26, 26 to 27, which we went over a, a few minutes ago. He also commanded the disciples to follow his lead and to do this act in the future. Now, there are a couple other ways in which the Last Supper deviates from the traditional Passover meal. Nowhere in either of the four Gospels is there a mention of a roasted lamb. That roasted lamb is kind of conspicuous in its absence. This is important, my friends, because Jesus took the place of the Passover lamb. What did John the Baptist say? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb had to be eaten. When Christ said the words of institution, the bread and wine that were present became his body, which was the sacrifice of a new covenant given for the sins of the world. Now, some of our Protestant friends will say, how could Jesus give himself to eat the Last Supper when he was still with them? Well, my friends, isn't Jesus God? If he truly is God, he can do that. Just because he's present there doesn't mean he can't make something else to say he couldn't do that is to deny the power of God. So to understand the remembrance, this remembrance of the Passover in this way makes the Eucharist not only a representation, a representation of the sacrifice and resurrection of Christ, but also a foretaste of the kingdom to come. So with the time we have left, my friends, I want to go over um, some of the evidence from the early church fathers. And there's a lot of it, but I'm, I'm only going to probably cover 
three or four of the church fathers, but the church fathers were unanimous in, in their belief in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So we're going to look at St. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, Justin Martyr, St. Irenaeus, and St. Augustine. Now, if you've listened to my shows before, you know I am huge fans of St. Justin Martyr and St. Irenaeus because it's their work that, used by the Holy Spirit, of course, that pretty much bludgeoned me into become, becoming Catholic. All right? So St. Ignatius of Antioch, um, he learned the faith from St. John. He was the second bishop of Antioch after St. Peter. While he was living, while he was being led to Rome for his martyrdom, he wrote seven letters to several Christian communities. At the time he wrote these letters, there was the heresy known as docetism that was gaining steam. And so this error taught that Jesus was not really human, and what people saw only seemed to be human. And so in many ways, it's very similar to Gnosticism in its view of who Jesus was. Some will say it's a, it was a precursor to Gnosticism. Um, so Ignatius warned against this false teaching in a very, very strong manner. One of, the, one of the ways he refuted this teaching was in the Eucharist. In his letter to the Smyrnians, he wrote, quote, They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer, because they confess not the Eucharist to be the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which suffered for our sins, and which the Father of his goodness raised up again. End quote. Well, it doesn't sound very symbolic. So to defend the Orthodox teaching of who Christ is, he states that the Eucharist is the body of Christ who suffered for our sins. If it was just a symbol, my friends, and his teaching on the Eucharist would have meant nothing to combat the docetic heresy or the docetist heresy, as some will pronounce it. In his letter, in his letter to the Philadelphians, not our friends in Pennsylvania, Okay, Asia Minor, or in his letter to the Philadelphians, he wrote about the importance of unity. He writes about the union of the bishop, avoiding schism, and how there is only one Eucharist. He says, quote, take ye heed then to have but one Eucharist. For there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to show forth the unity of his blood, one altar, as there is one bishop along with the Presbyterian deacons, end quote. So here's a bold claim here, at least in today's world, that there's one true Christian church and that the Eucharist is at the center of its sacramental life. So he sees the Eucharist as not only the body and blood of Christ, but as a connection to Christ. In addition to being the true body and blood of Christ, the Eucharist is a source of unity, a source of unity and strength to continue the Christian journey. For St. Ignatius, the grace given through God in the Eucharist helped him to proceed to his martyrdom. So let's go on to another church father. The first of the layman apologists, uh, Justin Martyr. In his first apology, he writes to the emperor to defend Christianity from misconceptions that were spreading through the Roman Empire. So he lays out the order of the mass in a lot of detail. And he addresses the charge of cannibalism that was often levied against Christians. He states that no one can receive the Eucharist unless they believe what the church teaches and only after baptism. He writes, quote, for not as common bread and common drink do we, we, do we receive these, excuse me, but in like manner as Jesus Christ, our Savior, 
having been made flesh by the word of God, had both flesh and blood for our salvation. So likewise, have we been taught that the food which is blessed by the prayer of his word, and from which our blood and flesh by transmutation are nourished, is the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. Now, the charge of cannibalism was a serious offense in the Roman Empire. And Justin clarifies what the Eucharist is to eliminate doubt. However, he still says, not that it's a symbol, that the Eucharist is the flesh and blood of Christ. Now, St. Irenaeus of Lyon, in his great work um, called Against Heresies, which everyone needs to read, in my opinion, if you're serious about learning about the Catholic faith. Again, that's Against Heresies. He's writing against the Gnostics. And so the Gnostics taught that all matter was evil and that the true teaching of Christ was passed down in secret. And salvation can only be attained by attaining the secret knowledge. Now, to fight this heresy, he said that all true churches have a rule of faith that was passed down via apostolic succession. So essentially, he said that all bishops can trace their lineage to the apostles. Now, that is still the teaching of the Catholic Church today. And that was a teaching after reading St. Irenaeus. That was one of the reasons I became Catholic, as I say, okay, especially when he said that all churches have to be in communion with Rome. But he says this in regard to the Eucharist, though. Quote, he does not speak these words of some spiritual and invisible man, for a spirit has not bones nor flesh. But he refers to that dispensation by which the Lord became an actual man, consisting of flesh and nerves and bones, that flesh which is nourished by the cup which is his blood, and receives increase from the bread which is his body. Hope, my friends, you are seeing a theme here. Not only do we have scripture to back up our claims on the Eucharist, but we have the claims of the earliest Christians who still, in the case of St. Ignatius, for example, was taught by John the Apostle. Let's go a little further in church history and look at St. Augustine. St. Augustine was very familiar with the Gnostic movement because he was a member of a Gnostic, of a part of the Gnostic movement known as Manichaeism. He understood the Gnostic movement's uh, teaching of all matter being evil. And he probably had a deeper appreciation of the sacraments as a result. Um, so in one of his sermons, he was instructing a group that had just received the sacrament of baptism. Augustine had promised to explain the nature of the Eucharist after they had been washed from the stain of original sin and received the seal of confirmation. So he writes regarding the Eucharist, or in his homily, he says, quote, The bread you see on the altar, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the body of Christ. The chalice, or rather, what is in the chalice, having been sanctified by the word of God, is the blood of Christ. So Augustine goes on to say that our eyes see ordinary bread and wine, but when they are consecrated, our faith obliges us to believe that they are the true body and blood of Christ. Now, St. Augustine wrote a ton more about the Eucharist. But just from that small quote that I gave, we can deduce two things. 
He strongly believed that the Eucharist was the literal body and blood of Christ, and it was something that must be believed. Secondly, that the ordinary elements are transformed when God sanctifies them. God uses ordinary elements, infuses them with his grace, and takes material things that cause us to sin and transforms them to become a cause for our sanctification. So, very important. So, we've talked about the... We talked about scripture. We talked about some of the church fathers. So when did this teaching of the Eucharist begin to be challenged? Now, we talked about Docetists and Gnostics. Now, they weren't really Christians, but within the Christian community itself, though, the Eucharist really went unchallenged for quite a while. Pretty much until the ninth century, that's when a monk by the name of Atramnus wrote a book titled on the body and blood of the Lord. And in that book, he wrote that Christ was present in the Eucharist, quote, only in a spiritual sense to the faith of believers. This is, a, this is the view that John Calvin would later take up during the Reformation. And this happened in the ninth century. So in the view of Retrabness, the Eucharist is a spiritual reality and not a physical one. So in doing so, he was the first to deny the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, at least the first within the Christian community. Because like I said, the Gnostics didn't believe in, you know, the humanity of Christ and all that. So they weren't, they really couldn't be considered, they couldn't be considered Christians. So Retramnus had a monk who was his superior by the name of St. Pastasius. Uh, now, Pastasius also wrote a book titled On the Body and Blood of the Lord. And it was published before Retramnus published his. Now, St. Pastatius held to the Orthodox teaching of the real presence. And for a time, the view of Retramnus was no longer a threat. That is until Beringer of Tours revitalized the controversy in 1050. Beringer of Tours was a skilled scholar who had real concerns about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In cases of like sacrilege, for example, like if you consume the Eucharist, are you... I don't know, is Jesus contained in your bowel movement, for example, or if um, rats were to eat the Eucharist, is that an act of sacrilege? No, is it proper for Christ to pass through the digestive system? No, things like that. Some things that Protestants will actually bring up. So there's nothing new under the sun. So Beringer of Tours also had the false assumption that all one had to do was to consume the Eucharist and one would be automatically saved. So if this were the case, in his view, there'd be no need for faith. Now, around the time, around this time, Aristotelian language was starting to be understood more, and this led to an opportunity for the church to clarify uh, Eucharistic language. And so the church works on the language at a regional council of Vercelli in 1050. It was here that Beringer, the views of Beringer of Tours were condemned. He did recant, uh, but later on he fell back into his error. In 1054, he signed another profession of faith in which he recanted of his error, um, he died in 1088, and he was in communion with the church, so he did uh, formally recant and not go back into error. But he did flip-flop quite, flip quite a bit during his life. Now, as is often the case, the church does not formally define something at a council until controversy arises. Um, so, though the error of Retrandus and Berenger of Tours were handled correctly, the error regarding the Eucharist continued with other groups, such as the Waldensians, the Albigensians, and the Cathars. And so the Fourth Lateran Council met 
and it was at this council that the word transubstantiation was used to describe what happened when the bread and wine are consecrated. Now, this formal definition answered the question of how the bread and wine became its physical, I'm sorry, maintained its physical appearance and taste and how they could be transformed. This was not, however, when the church started teaching it. So we went through scripture, we went through the church fathers. The church has always taught that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, that it changed to the body and blood of Christ. This was not some medieval teaching like some anti-Catholics will have you believe. That's my whole point of doing this show today. This is a show that the real presence of Christ has always been a teaching of the church. All right. So in conclusion, my friends, because we have about 14 minutes left. At the beginning of Caesar's scripture, we read about man being tempted with physical matter by Satan. You know, the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, etc. It was through material matter that sin entered the world. And through the longing and through the longing for it, most problems from the world are present. You know, greed, pride, lust, etc. God knows that we're physical beings and need to see things to comprehend and remember their significance. In this regard, he established the seven sacraments to infuse grace and help us get to heaven. This is where the sacramental worldview begins to take shape, especially in regard to the Eucharist. At the words of consecration, the physical elements of bread and wine are infused, the grace of God. In the sacrament, we are declaring unity with each other, unity with the church, and that Christ is fully present in the sacrament. It's something bigger than us, and it's a reminder about his death and resurrection that redeemed us all. We consume Christ, and he changes us from the inside out and confirm, conforms us more to his image. So, is the Eucharist the body and blood of Christ or a mere symbol? Now, the conclusion is that it's been a constant teaching of the church since apostolic times that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. We we went through scripture, we went through the church fathers. Again, I only went through four church fathers. You can go through you can go through every single one and find quotes from them saying that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. So my friends, I hope this helps you understand the Eucharist in a deeper way. I hope it under, I hope it helps you not take the Eucharist for granted if that is something that you've done. Because I think at one point or another, excuse me, at one point or another, we are all guilty of that. So my friends, the Eucharist is the body and blood of our Lord. May we always remember that when we consume, and may we always praise God for this great gift that he has given us. Amen. Well, everyone, thank you for joining me on this episode of Burnt Toast and Coffee. I want to bring our uh, founder, John, on the line real quick. He's been hanging on while I've been rambling off this whole time. <laughs> John, how you doing? No, I, I've been listening, hanging on every word. You gave a brilliant apology for the Eucharist today. If, if you got a minute, let me just add two things that I would sure. like to add that I think are very important. I basically want to take three points that you made and just kind of tie them together, braid them together. You, you started by talking about John three sixteen to 18, where it says that he, you know, he who believes, believes in Christ 
you know, may not be lost, but may obtain eternal life. But then it turns right around and says, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, it's interesting. This same point comes up in John chapter 6 when uh, when they, they challenged Jesus, what is the work that we must do to be saved? Well, the work that you must do, and this the Protestants throw this verse at us, is the work that you must do is believe in the Son of God. But they leave off the, the answer. Because when the Pharisees question him, well, what sign can you give us that we must believe our our fathers gave us our our, our ancestors uh, received bread from heaven? And Jesus' response is when he goes into this very very stark, as you pointed out, very very uh, starkly clear explanation of the real presence in John chapter 6 as what you must believe. As you made it clear, he lost followers as a result of it. Now, so we're talking about faith. We're talking about what you must believe. And in order to believe, you have to discern. To discern means to recognize what is true. All right? And one of the most frighteningly clear verses in all of scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 29 mm-hmm. where Paul states he who eats the bread and drinks the cup without discerning which means to recognize without discerning the body eats and drinks damnation upon himself that is a frighteningly clear verse of what being said here. So in other words, this ties John 3 and John 6 together with those who are condemned because they would not believe what what the church demanded that they believe. Second thing that I wanted to bring up is the accusation that we're cannibals. And there are a lot of church fathers that have brought up that uh, I think it was John Christostom was one that brought this up, and you can correct me if I've got the wrong saint, but he said what is different is that uh, a cannibal consumes the flesh of a dead person, and that dead flesh becomes part, is is consumed and, and is taken in and becomes part of that person. When we receive Jesus, we receive the entire Jesus, and rather than him being come, becoming part of us, we are incorporated into him, all right? And I want yeah. to give a scientific evidence to support this. This is really crazy stuff. In every Eucharistic miracle that has ever occurred in the history of the Catholic Church, do you know what the blood type is, is always tested as? AB. AB positive. Yep. Every AB single positive. time. Well, two things about AB positive blood. The first thing is that only about 4%, 4% of people have AB-positive blood, so it's a very rare blood type. Yeah, that's, that's, right, that's second, actually my blood type. <laughs> it's your blood type? It is. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Well, the second thing, with you having this blood type, you probably already know this, positive blood. It is the only universal receiver. It is the only blood that can receive blood from any other 
blood type. Well, wouldn't that really hammer home the point that we're incorporated into him? Right. He, it's the only universal receiver. So if if God was going to try to make a theological point with scientific evidence, uh, it'd be hard for him to do it more clear than 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 in this in this fact right here. Yeah, absolutely. Again, yeah. brilliant show, great subject, and uh, you did a. I, I just think you did an outstanding. I just love listening to your shows um, because you just you just break things down so clearly and so uh, succinctly. Uh, it is it is the absolute test of our faith, William. It is, you know, people say, well, uh, James said, you say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. Well, we demonstrate our faith every day. Every single day we have an opportunity to to demonstrate our faith when the priest elevates that host and says the body of Christ. And our eyes are telling us it's bread. That's what our eyes are telling us. Our lying Mm -hmm. eyes are telling us that. But our faith tells us, yes, it is so. Amen. Yes, it is so. It is the flesh of Christ. Why? Because that's what he told us. So we either believe him or we don't. So amen means I believe. So it means, yes, when I you, believe when you, it is so. It is so. So when you go to Mass tomorrow and you're saying amen, examine yourself. As St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you know, John just quoted that passage, you know, you, if you partake unworthily, you're guilty of the body and blood of Christ. St. Paul goes on to say, that's why some of you are sick. That's why some of you have died. Because you're partaking unworthily. So if you're, when you go to Mass tomorrow or later on today, you say, amen, check yourself. Do you really believe that it's the body and blood of Christ? If there's any shred of doubt, don't maybe get in that line. Abstain, for, abstain once, maybe study more. It's okay to do that. No yes. one's going to judge you for it. Um, so everyone, everyone listening needs to, and I say this even in my classes at church, study the Eucharist. There is so much out there on the Eucharist. There is so much to be uncovered in the Eucharist that's going to deepen our faith. One book I want to recommend for people is by Brant Petrie, a brilliant theologian. He has this book called The Jewish Roots of the Eucharist. And he he actually goes through Jewish tradition through the Talmud and everything, and gives argumentation on the Eucharist and what the Catholic Church says it is. It's a brilliant book. It's it's an easy read. Um, so I recommend everyone check that book out. So, well, you, why don't you do this? When you go back after the show is over, when you got a chance, why don't you go back and re-edit the show and put a link to that book in the show notes so people can go right in the show notes and, and get yep. a copy of that book? I could do that. I can do it later on today. Well, Easy All enough. right. Well, God bless All right, you. John. Have a wonderful weekend, William. Yeah, you as well. And uh, guys, tune in next week to the Burnt Toast and Coffee Show. We'll take a deep dive into Jeremiah chapter 29 and its message of hope. God bless you all. Have a great one. God bless.